it's January. January is named after the two-faced Greek god, Janus. The god of beginnings, endings, gates, transitions, doorways, passages. The Romans began each year by making promises to the god, Janus, for whom the month of January is named. This is not a biblical pattern, and today's message is more. It's not a message of resolutions but a biblical foundation for transformations. The message today speaks of how we can refocus our lives to the truth of Scripture. How are we doing? How can we do better? And the message today is primarily for followers of Jesus, but it's applicable for those who have not found meaning and purpose in life, to those who are searching trying to create purpose in a so-called meaningless world. Followers of Christ begin with a different perspective. We do not find meaning and purpose, but we are given new identity with a task and to take that exciting adventure with God. He does not care about the trinkets we collect, the castles we built, or the private goals we have. Followers of Christ have a purpose, a conviction, a vision, and take action far beyond these. I'm reminded of a story of a dog chasing a mountain lion to protect a family. And just when the dog is about to overtake the lion, a raccoon runs across the path, and the dog is distracted and diverts to chase the raccoon. And just about to overtake the raccoon, a rabbit is spotted, and the dog chases the rabbit. And you guessed it, a squirrel is seen, and a dog chases, changes course to chase the squirrel. And just about to overtake the squirrel, a mouse runs across the path and runs into a hole. Imagine this picture. A dog chasing a mountain lion moments earlier, and now barking down a hole at a mouse. Distractions do keep us from our major purpose in life. And this passage will realign us like a GPS to the theme of the Sermon on the Mount and further to explain why we are here on earth. So while some Christians would like to leave this earth, followers of Jesus have a job on this earth to do. And while some Christians have assumed the consumer mentality, a question whispers in our souls. What on earth are we doing for heaven's sake? And to answer this question, we return to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And it seems appropriate to continue the series and to begin this year with one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. So let's pray. Faithful Father, we begin today by giving you thanks. Your love endures forever. It never fails though there are many ways in which we have failed. We have not exceeded the supply of your mercy and grace. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. And as we open the Bible today, we pray that we would hear your voice and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work, opening our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word. May we be transformed into your likeness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
So let's look today. Matthew chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles, please, or your, your phones or whatever. Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16. Let's look at the salt and life lifestyle of influential believers. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 begins. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And before we dive into the very familiar, that spiritually stretching passage, I ask that you keep an open mind. This passage goes far beyond, beyond witnessing and sharing our faith. So let's begin. This passage is for world changers thought transformers, earth shakers, and for those who want to make a difference in this world. Jesus will shake our understanding of salt and light. These verses are addressed to those who are thermostats, who transform the world from a heart changed by God rather than thermometers, conformed to the cultural temperature of this world. The upcoming ACE class, the understanding of the times, will analyze the cultural temperature so that we can apply this passage even more than I have time today. And by the end of this message, I pray that everyone will be able to answer, what on earth are we doing for heaven's sake? For those who have taken my previous ACE classes, we study scripture by looking at the context and then make observations and compare with other scripture. Now let's not forget that these two metaphors, salt and light, are in the Sermon on the Mount, after the Beatitudes, after a warning of persecution, and right before a deeper understanding of righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is by far Jesus' longest explanation of what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus and to serve as a member of God's heavenly kingdom. These people who are salt and light, are marked by blessedness from God. They live more righteously than what they have heard before because of a changed heart, and they now live in obedience to God. This quote is for the younger crowd here. Bono from U2 says this, Stop asking God to bless what you are doing. Find out and get involved with what God is doing. It's already blessed. Not bad. Salt and light are blessed beatitude people who stand righteous before God and obey God from a transformed heart. Salt and light are beatitude people who stand righteous before God and obey God from a transformed heart. But more, these people who have profound effect on the world. These people are rare, 
but this is what followers of Jesus were born to be. So what did Jesus mean by these metaphors? What is the DNA of followers of Jesus? We're now going to make some large observations of two of the most potent descriptions of followers of Jesus Christ. We will then summarize some of the details for each metaphor. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Personal identity is one of the biggest concerns of America. People are seeking to find their identity in politics, in occupation, in race, nationality, ethnicity, gender, sexual preference, economic status, and the list goes on. A great theologian once said, knowing yourself comes from knowing God. Modern philosophy and New Age mysticism says the opposite, doesn't it? Josh McDowell says, you think of yourself like the most important person in your life thinks of you. And that is why this passage is directed toward those who follow Jesus. They were identified as salt and light, and that will resonate deep in their souls. Okay, here are some observations just on those phrases. Doing the extraordinary. Jesus uses common, innocuous, unassuming terms to name us. Jesus has the habit of using the common to explain the ordinary. God has the habit of ta taking ordinary people to do the extraordinary. God chooses to work through people. He does not work through diamonds, pearls, or other precious gems, or through fireworks or sparkling lights. He works through the salt and light. And followers of Jesus are extraordinary with a world-changing task. Being what you are. Salt and light speak of who we are and what we do. It's not a command. He's not telling you, be salt, be light. You already are. He's not telling us when you get to a particular position in your life and when you grow spiritually strong, you'll be the salt and light. No, you are the salt. You are the light when you follow Jesus. John MacArthur says, your first obligation as a Christian is to learn about your position in the body of Christ. Basically, God's gift of salvation in Christ brings a believer into position of righteousness. God imputes the perfect righteousness of his son to the believer and thereby declares him righteous positionally. It is on the basis of our positional righteousness that we are exhorted to strive for practical righteousness in our lives. Who are we? Who you are in Christ. You're not just an ordinary person. You're a child of the living God and an heir. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You're not just a sinner. You're a new creation in Jesus. You're part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You 
are one of God's chosen people. As a Christian, you are spiritually alive unto God. You're dead to sin, forgiven, declared righteous, a child of God, God's possession, an heir of God, blessed with all spiritual blessings, a citizen of heaven, a servant of God, free from the law, crucified to the world, a light to the world, victorious over Satan, cleansed with sin, declared holy and blameless, set free in Christ from the power of sin, secure in Christ, granted peace and rest, and led by the Holy Spirit. Can I hear it? Amen. Amen. This is who you are. This is what God calls you. This is who the most important person in your life calls you. You get it? You are salt. You are light. And you're probably thinking, the Bible may say all that, but I sure don't live up to those descriptions. And that's why in the New Testament, for every one of those statements about your position, there's a corresponding practice here to follow. The New Testament says, since you are spiritually alive to God, live according to that new life. Since you are dead to sin, don't give sin any place in your life. Since you're forgiven, count on that, and don't be going living a life feeling guilty. And since you've been declared righteous, live righteously. And since you are a child of God, act like one of God's children. And since you are God's possession, yield to him in humble submission. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with you have been called. John MacArthur continues, if we honestly study our position in Christ, our life will change. This is where my wife and I spend most of the time in the counseling room, reminding people who they are in Christ. Being salt and light is our business on earth. It's our activity. We're not consumer Christians, but ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom. And here's some more identity descriptions. We are living epistles, allowing others to enter and turn the pages of our lives and even the fine print. We are a fragrant aroma, attracting others to smell the welcoming aroma of salvation and the stench of death without Christ. We are a bride of Christ, representing purity, moving hearts, and turning people's heads. We are faithful sowers, faithfully sowing seed of the word of God. We're fishermen who follow Jesus, fishing for people as an honorable role of bringing people into the kingdom of God as a livelihood. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, sharing the beauty and inviting others to move to a better country of what people can only dream about. This is who we are. Well, number four. Living up to our name. Both salt and light speak of living up to our name. Both explain what happens when we do not live up to our character. When we are trampled, it's absurd, it's impossible. The context does not speak of losing our salvation, but speaks to the expectations of being salt and light. This is what we do. Salt and light speak of being what the world needs. Both assume that there's something not right with the world. 
And salt and light is what is needed. The biblical worldview is that the world is corrupted and decayed, and it's getting darker, and it's decaying more. And apart from that perspective, Christ's words in Matthew 5 make no sense. The world is growing more corrupt and darker, and the solution is not a spoonful of sugar or aspirin for a fallen world, a pinch of salt and a little bit of cutter and positive thoughts sent in your direction. The answer is followers of Christ guiding others to follow Christ. Let's take a look more. Doing God's work God's way. Both salt and light deal with influence and permeating strategies. God works through people, not automation. And you are the plan. You look at each other. You're the plan. You're the salt and light. You're God's best plan. No other. The plan to influence the world but this influence involves contact. This plan is entrusted to followers of Jesus, the strategic influence. We engage, we interact, we permeate the world. Supernatural change involves transformation of our hearts and others' hearts as we do our job. Ah, oh, now it gets better. Planning something immense the salt of the earth, not just a Boise, not just some tribe somewhere. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world, and that's far-reaching and not a little plan. Followers are part of a master plan where local and far away are both important. Notice that the you is plural, hinting that we're not alone. God ordains the church to perform the task of being salt and light, to reach the whole world. Now this resonates with our lifeblood. Salt and light produces an appealing emotion of familiarity with the Jews, heart and inspiration. You see, both flash a memory of every Jew who knew the scriptures. Adding salt is the means of sealing and sustaining a covenant promise with God. And the book of Isaiah also speaks of the expected true king bringing light to the world and will emanate through his people. And the disciples are to live out the Beatitudes to show God's desire for the nations to come to him and embrace the covenant he is offering. You see, often Christians make cut flower churches snipped away from their roots. Reaching the world with the truth has been God's plan from the beginning. Now, the most important one is relating to our culture. Both salt and light show the clearest picture of how a follower in Christ relates to culture. In John 17, Jesus says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. See, we are in the world as a point of location, but the world is not our source of information. We are not to separate ourselves from the world. 
We're not to identify ourselves with the world. We're not even supposed to transform the world. We are to model how Jesus lived the tension of the incarnation as we interact with the world as citizens of another kingdom. All right. Looking forward to talk about this next part. What does it mean to be salt? What's the purpose of salt? And to us, perhaps to the earlier followers of Jesus, salt floods the mind with meaning. In the time of Jesus, salt was a high commercial value, and it was a well-known commodity. Salt has not only permeated economics, but also language. Salt. Salt. S-A-L. That's the prefix. Salami. Highly seasoned pork or other meat. Salary. And that's how people used to be paid in salt. Salute. To pay welcome. Salvage. The payment for saving a ship of cargo. Salvage. Deliverance that involves payment. It's infiltrated the way we think to be worth one's salt, to take with a grain of salt, to rub salt in someone's wounds. Please pass the salt. Now, of course, there's a secular use of being salt of the earth. Secular meanings take the spiritual potency away and waters the whole word down to now meaning an individual or group considered as representative of the best and noblest elements of society. No mention of Jesus Christ. Just the best that society can bring. This is also true of the phrase city on the hill used by Jesus to explain shining the light of the world, but now in a modern context, it's used in United States politics to refer to America acting as a beacon of hope for the world. Again, no mention of Jesus. So, what is salt? Biblical scholars don't agree on the meaning of salt in Matthew 5.13. Some believe that the whiteness of the salt represents the purity of a righteous believer. Others believe that the flavoring properties of salt represent that Christians are to add flavor to the world. Mm. Yet others are of the opinion that Christians are to sting the world with rebuke and judgment in the same way, pouring salt on a wound and the rebuke and judgment. Mm. And so other theologians believe that as salt, we are to create a thirst for God's word and kingdom. Well, today let's look at one of the aspects of a parallel passage. It's found in Mark 9.50. It goes like this, and, and the Apostle Paul picks up on this. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Well, that's interesting and be at peace with each other. Colossians 4, 6 says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I do believe the salt has other applications. 
to preserve things, adds flavor. Let's follow this track and see where it goes. Seasoned with salt, what could that mean? As it turns out, salt has been a symbol for many things. Let your speech be seasoned with wisdom. Biblical scholarship refers to the rabbinic literature which equates salt with wisdom. Let your conversation be seasoned with wit. Let your conversation be seasoned with a preservative. Let your speech be seasoned with a preservative. Salt was ground into the meat to prevent spoiling. And conversations need to be seasoned with salt so as to apply fresh, life-giving words to the interaction. Sinful words have a way of rotting the mind and the spirit. Godly words and attitude in a discussion can preserve the life of Christ and someone dying because of the world's tendency to rot and spoil. Salt, let your conversation consist of words of healing. Salt has been used as a healing agent since ancient times, especially when mixed with water and applied to cuts and scrapes and open sores. Let your speech be seasoned with purity. In the Hebrew Bible, salt often represents purity. Peace, let your conversation be filled with words of peace. We can learn a lot from these six meanings, especially when conversing with unbelievers, but in really, in all our conversations, it's clear we have to carefully consider conducting a godly interaction. And our conversations need to be seasoned with wisdom and wit and used as a preservative and using words, pure words that promote healing and peace. That means we have to be connecting. We hear the phrase, not worth our salt. But if law salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt only has influence when it's in contact. And there are two ways salt can lose its potency. One, it's diluted by the addition of other elements. We can lose our influence by diluting our lives with worldliness. So much like the world, that we'd make no difference. And we also can lack potency by not even being added, like salt piles, like the Dead Sea. Not used, secluded, isolated. And when salt loses its potency, the Jews would spread it on the flat roofs and make it hard, prevent leaks, and the kids would play up there and trampled it. We need to enter people's lives. That sounds so risky. But greater is he that's in you than he who is in the world. See, we're in the world, but not of it. The closest connection would be incarnational influence. So I've gathered a couple touching examples. Here's Jesus touching the lives of people, eating dinner with them, and over here giving them water. The first story is about John Bunyan. There are three or four women sitting at a door in the sun. This is John Bunyan's words, talking about the things of God. I drew near to hear their discourse. The conversation was not about prices of eggs or bread. The talk was not of gossip. Their talk was about the new, the new birth. The work of God in their hearts is also how they convinced 
who were convinced of the miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls and with his love on the Lord Jesus and with promises they had been refreshed and comforted and supported against the temptations of the devil. They spoke with such pleasantness of scriptural language and with such appearance of grace and all they said that they were to me as if I'd found a new world. I felt my own heart begin to shake and to mistrust my condition for all. I saw that in all my thoughts about religion and salvation, the new birth never entered my mind. Neither knew I the comfort of the word and promise nor the deceitfulness of my own wicked heart. And thus, John Bunyan woke up, became a Christian, and later to write the most popular Christian book, Pilgrim's Progress. Just by overhearing ladies talking. Years ago, Mike Bowden gave me a book called Tipping Our Kings. It's a true story of two colliding worldviews and their unavoidable evolution. And Jack Crabtree, a recent college grad, is just dipping his toes into theology when he meets Nick Chapman, a brilliant philosopher, PhD, and childhood chess champion who's searching for truth and meaning. And it's their friendship. And they both had to act in humility. They both tipped their kings to each other. Being salt involves contact, conversation, Friendship. Try this sometime. Mike Bowden taught me this. Goes to a restaurant, and we went at the breakfast quite often, and he would ask the waiter or waitress, we're just about to pray. Is there anything you want to pray about? And every time there was something for the waiter or waitress to pray about. Never like, no, everything's fine. It's always like, yeah, there's something I want you to pray about. What an opportunity right there. And, and continuing to go to the same, way, uh, the same restaurant over and over again to meet certain people over and over and over again. Touching lives is like, please pass the salt. Years ago, my father was in a hospital, hours before he died. We gathered around wife and I and the children and sang on his deathbed. We ended with a song, Blessed Assurance. And to this day, I can't sing that while I'm crying. There was just a curtain between the, the, the bed next to them. And uh, we were singing so loud that they started singing. The whole room heard, down the hall it heard throughout the hospital. Blessed assurance, permeating the hospital. The next day, we went to a concert. His name is Ken Miedema, who was very good at impromptu, making up songs and lyrics. And, and it was, he was a blind piano player. And his topic was lives touching lives. I said, I got that. <laughs> It happened just yesterday. He said, anybody have a story? And I, I barely got it all out. I said, yeah, I have a story. How the word blessed assurance permeated the hospital. 
and I was waiting for him to produce some, some kind of lyrical uh, original presentation or to talk about it, he paused. We all sang. It was an auditorium. We all sang Blessed Assurance. We want the world to hear the music of our lives and want to know the words. And salt only has influence when it is in contact. I call those stories tales of redemption. So I look at this picture, and we're seeing the Museum of Dream Space Lights. Uh, dream Space. And we, uh, it was as a Hollywood. I do this to represent that there are so many distractions. The lure of shiny objects is popular description of distractions. And there's a fascination with shiny objects for people as well as animals. From the stars in the sky to fireworks on New Year's to the bling of a jewelry store, we're surrounded by shiny objects. Deer in a headlight, awestruck by the approaching headlights. In the classic book, Where the Red Fern Grows, the author tells how to capture a raccoon. You drill a small hole in the log, hammer some nails at an angle around the hole, and drop something shiny in the hole. You got it. Upon finding the bling, the raccoon would reach inside and not be able to remove his paw because he would not let go of the shiny object. He would rather die than let go of the shiny object. If you're a fisherman, you know the, the lure of a shiny object to catch fish. In a world of shiny objects, Jesus calls his followers to the light of the world who points to Jesus and glorifies Jesus. It's not shiny objects. It's the light of the world from Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see the good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When I was uh, teaching middle school mathematics, is that, is that purgatory? <laughs> I had my thoughts on that. <clears throat> I reminded myself of, of the true mission with a candle on my desk. No, it was a battery operator one, and you can imagine why. A battery operator one, I turned on and it said on it, I actually put stickers on it to make that, lighten up. It had multiple meetings for me, but it served the purpose. We are stars in this dark and morally foggy world. We all hear all sorts of voices shouting orders, telling how to adjust our lives and giving direction. And the only true message comes from the light of the gospel. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12, he started a mighty privilege he'd pass on to us. Light is needed to all those groping in the dark. Light only gives direction when it is visible. And the radiant lives of followers of Christ point to Christ and carry the message of the gospel. 
Acts 13, 47 says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are a light in the world. Live as children of light. But the case of the impossible and the absurd, it's impossible. See, a city on a hill, and that looks like a mountain, doesn't it? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Where there's life, there is light. A city on the hill in the ancient world attracted travelers and made it vulnerable to invaders. When you start shining, you'll be attracting those who believe and those who want to criticize. Shining for God makes us vulnerable to criticism and persecution. It's impossible to hide the light of life. And it's absurd. Even in the instant where a light could be hidden, it fails to do its purpose. A candle under a bowl serves no purpose and does, does little good for the bowl. And Luke 8.16 is more humorous. It says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. A candle under a bed long enough could cause quite a commotion for those in the house. So what do we say to people? Look for the house with the light shining. And when we see people groping in the darkness of the world, we can say, look for the church with the lives shining. Now, let your light shine. What does it mean to shine? In the same way. Scripture says it. In the same way. It is as obvious as a city on a hill and as useful as a lamp in the house. Let your light shine before men. Boldly show the Christ likeness with skills and talents and strategically communicate Christ. So they may see your good deeds. See the beauty and will ask about the master artist. Hear the music and want to know the words. So that many praise and glorify your Father who's in heaven. By exhibiting a life that points to Jesus, we give people an opportunity to leave their darkness and come into the light of the gospel. See, you glorify the Lord. The activity glorifies the Lord. And prayerfully, those who see the light will glorify the Lord. Philippians 2, 15 and 16 says, Then you will shine among them as stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Salt. It only has influence when it's in contact. It's incarnational. It's in the world, but not of it. Light. It only gives direction when it's visible. It's bold. It's in the world, but not of it. Now, what do we do? What does it mean to shine? What on earth are we doing for heaven's sake? Well, you have three choices. We can make a mess. We can make a splash. Or we can make a difference. January is a time to look back and to learn and to move forward to 2022. If we think we're th feeling bad, everybody feels bad. But we have the strength and power of the Lord Jesus Christ 
Imagine when God calls you home and the curtain is pulled back and you meet Jesus and the angels face to face and have the rest of eternity to meet the people you've touched and those you've influenced and the lives they touched and influenced and the lives that they touched and influenced and knowing that you were here to, for a purpose to be salt and light and they hear those words well done good and faithful servants enter into the joy of the Lord let's pray Thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege to be salt and light. We thank you, Lord, that we can do the work of heaven on this earth. May we see and jump to every opportunity to be salt and light for your business, making our business. Help us change the world for your sake. May we speak the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name.